Sometimes things just get away from us in life that we later realize we've missed. And with a certain fighter leaving the UFC soon, well, I figured now is the time to talk about some fights left on the table throughout MMA history. So yeah, and uh, great intro. Let's jump right into it. I'm Jason from MMA on Point for the second week in a row, what? And these are the 10 trilogies that MMA lost. Number 10, Robert Whittaker versus Yoel Romero. It might be kind of unusual to start with a trilogy that was lost by one of the fighters twice, but that's the problem with just reading out records because they don't really tell you the whole story. Whittaker won the first fight without too much to complain about, but it was a banger and actually won fight of the night. The rematch is where all the controversy lies. Before both men even made it to the cage, Joel broke records in the worst way possible. He missed weight in two title fights back to back. He first missed weight by 2.7 pounds against Rockhold for the interim belt and then bafflingly did it again against Whitaker for the rematch, but this time for just 0.2 pounds. Where's DC's towel when you need it? This almost made him a bit of a villain in the public sphere because everyone was just done with him at that point. But he definitely showed up to fight that night. If you go back and watch that fight, he rocked Whitaker in rounds three, four, and five. In my opinion, at least, that means he won the fight. Damage, especially now in the scoring system, is even more prioritized than it was back then. And of course, many fans will disagree with me, but the fact that an argument even exists means there could be a third fight. There were even arguments he won the Costa and Izzy fights too, I personally disagree with those. You could at least argue he did the best against Izzy so far, also the worst. So that puts him in a similar boat to Whitaker at the top of the division. He shouldn't have been kicked out of the UFC. He also just assassinated a guy in Bellator, so there's that. But it's unlikely to happen now because they're separated by promotions, and this is MMA. Number nine, Misha Tate versus Ronda Rousey. Fun fact, this fight was actually booked at one point, but mysteriously fell through for whatever reason, and, and we never really heard why from the UFC. So so what did we get instead? Rousey versus Holm. Talk about a nearly changing history moment. We all know what happened with that fight, of course, and what happened after also makes it super interesting. Holm did well through most of the fight with Misha Tate, but it was Tate that realized her championship dreams with that infamous last-second RNC. Of course, Tate already had lost to Ronda twice, once pretty gruesomely, the other quite disrespectfully, but the truth is the home loss really did expose Ronda's holes on the feet. I mean, Kat Zinganu, for instance, ran directly into Ronda for one of the worst title challenges slash chokes in MMA history. That also happens to be the person that last finished, Amanda Nunes, which was just before her historic run began. So you can imagine this pretty easily. The benefit of hindsight now probably would have changed quite a few fighters strategies, including Misha's, and it would have given her a much better chance. It's one of the better selling fights in women's MMA history. The only other contender would have been a Holly rematch. If Misha would have waited for Rousey's return, we might have well just seen a different fight for the third one. Number eight, McDonald versus Lawler. Any fan who has seen it will forever remember the insanity that was their second fight, which already makes this a shoe in for the list, but the first fight was super close as well, albeit not nearly as good, but that's also what made the second fight such a pleasant surprise that arguably stole the show at 189, at least for many hardcore fans. And what would have made a third fight super intriguing as well is despite getting the late finish, the judges definitely had McDonald well ahead on the scorecards. They actually scored the same across all three of them. Essentially, Rory just took all he could and crumbled underneath everything in the fifth. But hey, at least he got to live up to that Red King nickname. And so then, why did we never get this a third time? Hell, we even got a second Diaz-Lawler fight 
10 years way too late. Well, Rory being the enterprising man that he is, only had one more fight in the UFC against Stephen Thompson and went straight to Bellator to get a big paycheck, his sponsors back, and no USADA, plus a title. It hasn't gone his way as often since then, even to this day in PFL, but it guaranteed him marquee status in both promotions. Combine all of that with the time and distance, Robbie and Rory nearing the end of their careers, it's pretty safe to say we'll never see this fight go down for a third time, but if they did do this a couple of years ago, this could have been one to rank among the greatest trilogies ever. Number 7, Brock versus Frank Mir. Imagine you decided you're going to take up MMA in your second ever fight, you jump straight into a bout with a former and future champion with a penchant for snapping fighters' limbs off. Mix that in with a bit of star power, natural ability, insane size, aka steroid-infused rare candy, NCAA wrestling credentials, and baby you got a stew going. This decidedly favorable concoction of unlikely characteristics worked out surprisingly well, basically ragdolling Frank Mir around the octagon throughout two fights. If it wasn't for his veteran savvy and excellent composure that caused him to snack on that super quick knee bar, there wouldn't be much to talk about here, but the fact that he did means we were left with one and one by the end of the rivalry. And I'll be honest, I'm not too sure about Mir's chances in a third fight based on those first two, but ideally, if this fight would have happened around the time that Brock left in the early 2010s, there is absolutely no debating the business side of this. Even for just half of what it did at UFC 100, this is a blockbuster number. It would have very easily sold itself enough to justify it happening either way. Number six, Eddie Alvarez versus Michael Chandler. By the time these two first met, Alvarez was pretty much a couple years ahead of Chandler in terms of popularity and career development. Back then, Chandler was only 8-0 and made his way through the old Bellator tournament system to get his first title shot. Eddie Alvarez fought all over the world in places like Dream, even Bodog, and had just won the lightweight championship in Bellator at 22-2. But despite three times the experience against him, Chandler shocked the MMA world and instantly took it to Alvarez in a back-and-forth effect that exhausted both men before landing the rear naked choke to seize the title. There was no chance this rivalry was about to be over. After two more wins for Alvarez, they would square off again in one of the greatest lightweight contests in any organization, period. Both men were absolutely pushed to their limits in the timekeepers as well, where Alvarez would get the nod in a fight that already had you dreaming about a third contest. So they booked the two for the first ever pay-per-view in Bellator history in May of 2014. High stakes in MMA almost always means disaster, though. Just a mere week before the fight, Alvarez suffered a concussion, and their big pay-per-view main event debut was totally scrapped. So they set up an interim fight between Chandler and late replacement Will Brooks. The MMA gods roared in spiteful laughter, goddammit, when Chandler suffered a huge upset decision loss to Brooks, and then again in an immediate rematch, this time by TKO. Furthermore, Alvarez just left for the UFC. Of course, Chandler would make it to the promotion eventually, but by the time he arrived, it was well past Alvarez's UFC career. And as the two are now entering into their late 30s, they're in different organizations, the odds of this fight taking place are pretty much non-existent, or it'll just happen way too late somewhere else. Number 5, Boss Rutten versus Ken Shamrock. While Shamrock would lose to Hoist at UFC 1, on the other side of the planet, he would effectively establish himself as the face of Pancrase in Japan by defeating one of the founders of the organization, Matsukatsu Funaki. Get up, get up. Ah! 
And the fact that he was already a star on the Japanese pro wrestling circuit made this even more momentous. But someone who also made their debut at that first event was a lesser known kickboxer at the time by the name of Boss Rutten. At this point, he was pretty much as pure a kickboxer as you could find. He was a fish out of water on the ground where Shamrock was already a shark born straight out of that catch wrestling submission game. Even still, Boss was way ahead of his peers on the feet, managing to completely destroy his first two opponents. But when he fought Funaki himself for the first time, he would quickly take advantage of Boss's inexperience on the ground, subbing him only a couple of minutes into the fight. This would inspire a quick guillotine for Boss in his next fight, but it was still very early for him. And when he met Ken Shamrock in July of 1994, the chasm between the two on the ground was still quite large. He actually would last surprisingly long with almost 17 minutes of constant threats before Ken found the rear naked choke. Boss would then go on to face more adversity through Ken's brother Frank, and so when he fought Ken the second time, I'm not even sure he knew what a knee bar was yet. He certainly didn't seem to see it coming, and so this is what sent his submission game into an absolute obsession. Famously, he would practice knee bars and arm bars on his wife or call random training partners at very early hours of the morning just to work on new setups for submissions, and the obsession quickly paid off. He would literally never lose again, except for maybe one time, and it was submission that actually became a primary method of victory. Unfortunately for him though, Shamrock was long gone by this point from the organization, and when Ken did return to MMA, they tried to set it up in pride, but he wasn't interested saying that he'd already beaten him twice. My god, do I wish they made this fight though, because it would have been something completely different this time around. Honestly, I think Boss would have killed him. Number 4, Michael Bisbing versus Luke Rockhold. This one always felt like it never had a real resolution. I mean, all you have to do is just watch a little bit of their post-fight press conference. And going back, their first fight was about as convincing a win as someone could ask for, ending in a guillotine for Rockhold. And to be honest here, there was a bit of animosity between them, but this seemed to be it. I don't think many fans were necessarily clamoring for a rematch. It was just dominant. Rockhold shook Bisbeing's hand afterwards and went on to capture the middleweight title by the end of the following year, but Bisbeing would rebound. He managed to get three notable wins back-to-back, -back, including headlining a UFC fight pass card. By the way, what the hell ever happened to those? Anyhow, he just so happened to beat Anderson Silva by dominating the fight after being essentially KO'd by him. That's when he showed Tyson Fury the way to recover from a flash KO doing this three and a half years before Fury would put on his Undertaker performance against Wilder. All English people are the same. That's when Chris Weidman was on a journey to get his belt back after losing it to Rockhold that previous December. Fatefully, Weidman would get a neck injury, so only a couple of weeks out from UFC 199, Bisbing being the man he is, was all too happy to step up. And you had one of the funnest short notice buildups to a fight pretty much ever. Sounds like I the worst self-help book you've ever read. Conceive, believe, achieve. Shut the fuck up. Listen. Rockhold indeed lived up to his cocky reputation and threw some lazy, unguarded punches, didn't respect Bisbing's power, and absolutely got leveled by left hook Larry. Their post-fight press conference, as I mentioned earlier, might as well have been their pre-fight presser. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you are, buddy? Yeah, uh, that's after you. Yeah, hey, buddy, you, you got knocked the fuck dick. out. Hey. You got knocked out, buddy. Sit down, shut up. You got up. lucky. All right. You oh, yeah. Real lucky. Bisping. First round, buddy. 
first round. What an asshole, guys. It was like they were already getting ready for another fight. But Bisbing was after that Hendo revenge and GSP money. He'd retire after his injuries caught up with him and the unfortunate decision to fight Gastelum on three weeks notice. Combine that with Rockhold's losing streak and inactivity, this promoter's dream of a trilogy pretty much just faded out entirely. Number three, Francis Ngannou versus Stipe Miocic. Fortunately, unlike most on this list, this fight is actually still on the table. You've essentially got the greatest heavyweight title reign ever with Stipe's record-breaking championship run versus the man who dethroned him that is quickly making his own case for the greatest heavyweight champ ever. No one has ever done to Ngannou what Stipe did in that first fight, and the emergence of patience Ngannou throughout their second showed that he is more than up to the task now. So a third matchup is a ready-made fight that's all about the adjustments either man can make to outwit the other. There are many problems with this though already. If you have not seen Tommy Toehold's incredible breakdown of Ngannou's legal troubles with the UFC and his desire to move into boxing, have you got a big Tory? I cannot recommend it enough. But the long and short of it is that Ngannou wants what everyone is pushing for these days, but is perhaps pushing for it further than anyone else ever has. We're talking true independent contractor status. He wants to box and not be tied down with long contracts. He still wants to fight for the UFC, but he just wants to have a bit more autonomy and control over his career. Like I said, that's a discussion better covered by Tommy, so check out that video. But on the other side of things with Stipe, it looks like the fight the UFC wants next for him is with John Jones. So that would at least be one more hurdle in between a trilogy for them. So while I hope and feel this third fight will happen, there are very real barriers that exist now that basically threaten this fight from happening. Number two, Cejudo versus DJ. By this point, the fans of this channel, when we've discussed it in the past, have told us in the comments that while Ben Askren wasn't the most successful, to say the least, inside of the Octagon, it was overall a hugely beneficial move for the UFC and Askren financially, while DJ could go on and do what he wanted in one championship. So their historical trade was more or less worth it, many would say. I actually don't disagree with many of that. Askren was a really fun part of the roster, win or lose, and I've enjoyed DJ's one career win or lose as well. But the thing is, did they really have to trade DJ to get Askren? Askren was already retired from the organization by this point. I'm sure that there were other deals, aka money, that they could have thrown at him to try to get him. They didn't have to lose one of the best champions in the sport's history. I just don't think it would have cost that much money with a guy with a messed up hip and who was retired. And sales are not for DJ. He wasn't the best pay-per-view star, but legitimacy is what all UFC stars have to go through. Connor had to be Aldo and Alvarez. He wouldn't have been nearly as popular without legitimate wins. Diaz Uno reversed Connor. That really helped his career. He was not nearly as big. Brock Lesnar even had to beat Couture in Mir. If they would have just lost their fights, no one would have cared. And of course, all the stars like GSP or Silva who have done most of their talking just by being dominant champions. But the larger point of this is why we will never likely see Cejudo versus DJ for a third time. Although DJ did dominate the first fight, Cejudo managed to do the unthinkable and get that close decision win in the rematch. And I mean, how many times have we seen immediate rematches for dominant champions? Some of them not even that dominant, and especially such a close win. If you ask me, it's a real shame we never got to see this. Even if DJ and Cejudo do somehow both return, we'll likely never see Cejudo ever go back to 125, so it won't happen at that weight class. Consider this rematch only for the oddities pile with De La Hoya at heavyweight or something when they're like both 50. Number one, Diaz versus Connor. 
Now, I'm not usually the guy to vigorously cheer on the money fights over the Nganu and Stipe's or Cejudo versus DJ's, but you have to recognize, even I do, at the end of the day, the impact this rivalry has had on the sport. It just begs to be ranked at number one. These two have single-handedly brought in more fans over the last 10 years than most of the roster combined. And for their second fight to end as closely and as contested as it was means it's a trilogy payday that both men and a spectacle that fans all deserve. But as we are ending out Diaz's contract with what looks to be one last fight, it becomes extremely likely Connor will ride out the rest of his career in the UFC, or at least any of the interesting parts of it. And with both men entering into what looks to be the twilight years in terms of their competitiveness, even towards the top 10 of the division, each year loses its luster over the last. If there is one fight that can have the most impact on the sport financially, bringing new eyeballs and being a true blockbuster, it's irrefutable this one that would create the most traction in every category. You can truly never say never in combat sports, but it seems pretty obvious at this point that this fight will be lost to time. The best case is likely an oddities bout, and they're well beyond prime outside of the UFC. And by then, it's not that interesting, is it? I'd like to give a big ol' shout out to Luke Taylor. He's the guy that edited this video. What are you, what are you doing right there, huh? What's that? What, huh? Oh, stop. And then, of course, Ben Rosette. His songs give me a boner. Check him out in the description. I'm a big fan. Anyhow, that's it for me, guys. Hope you guys liked the video. Please like and subscribe. I can't tell you enough how much it matters to this channel's growth and just the outreach, the algorithm, all that stuff. I know you guys hear it all the time, but if you are a fan of MMA and you like this content, make sure you support it. You can follow me on Twitter at JasonTheHeart. And uh, yeah, see you guys later.